chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and if you happen to be using the Center Church Bible reading plan, like if you've got one of these in your Bible, this is the passage you're reading tomorrow, so you can count it, okay? So you can count this as you're reading for tomorrow if you want to. Uh, We're picking up in the middle of the gospel, well, toward the end of the gospel, rather, as Jesus is heading toward the cross. We're going to begin reading Mark 14, verse 1. This is God's Word. In these, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why Do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to her, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. I want to ask the question, how much is a relationship worth to you? Uh, I remember one time in my life, I had to put a specific price tag on a relationship. I think too often we're like, oh, that relationship is priceless. That family relationship, that marriage is priceless. But I learned the hard way that sometimes there's an actual price. I was dating my now wife, uh, long distance. That's the end of the story. Spoiler, I did marry her. But at the time, Jen and I were dating long distance. I was in El Paso and she was in uh, Washington, D.C. area. And so I was a a college student. I'd saved a little bit. I had a part-time job. And so I began using my savings to fly out to see her or bring her out to see me. And so dating cross-country was expensive. And with every purchase of those plane tickets, I remember thinking is this worth it, you know? And, and yep, buying the plane tickets. And something happened along the way. As my savings dwindled, my love for Jen grew. And so by the end, it was a trade I was happy to make. Though in the middle, as she's often reminding me, uh, there was a particular moment where I, I basically said to her in the most romantic gesture of all time, hey, so I'm kind of running out of money. So do you think this is going somewhere? Because if not, I'd, I'd rather you just tell me now so I can keep my last $1,000. Um, incredibly romantic. You could see why she uh, went for me. So that was eventually, though, a trade I was happy to make. I would have spent all my money and almost did on that relationship. Today's big question is this. How much is Jesus worth to you? How much is he worth 
to you. And I want to give you the freedom and ask you to not give the Bible answer, which is everything. No, 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 for you. How much is Jesus worth? We're going to look at that question as we look at the different sort of portraits in this text. And the first portrait, um, well, the, all the portraits rather hang around this particular shocking act. So when we read Mark, you notice that Mark often does this as you read Mark. He'll have a pre-story, a post-story, and then a story in the middle. And the story in the middle is meant to drive home the main point. It's almost shaped like an arrow pointing the way to the main part of the text, the main idea of the text. And at the center of this text is a shocking act where Mary, with whom we know this woman is from Mary from the other Gospels, she approaches Jesus in the middle of a celebratory party pre-Passover. Now, this is at Simon the leper's house, and obviously he's no longer a leper because everybody's at his house. And, and this is probably a collection of people who have been healed by Jesus, helped by Jesus, followers of Jesus. They are all excited to see Jesus, to be with Jesus, to celebrate Jesus. And in the middle of this party atmosphere, it would have been common to exchange gifts at, at different points with family, perhaps from outside Jerusalem, or, or often a, a special gift was given to the poor the night before, the day before the Passover. And so Mary is part of the celebration and people are perhaps exchanging gifts and celebrating. And yet she walks in past sort of where she was supposed to be. There'd probably be a, a circle of men at the center with the, the close disciples around Jesus. And she enters that circle with this ointment. Now you might think, okay, well, it's just a jar of ointment. Sure. sure. You know, it's like a scentsy candle. It smells nice. It's great. He's not a nice gift for Jesus. No, 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 no. Kent Hughes, one of the commentators, uh, comments that this was likely, because of the nature of it, a family heirloom. It was nard, which was, was probably a, a particular type of ointment found only in India. So imagine getting this from India to Jerusalem. It would be in the elegant bottle. It would be, in some sense, it would represent a, a huge portion of the wealth of Mary's family, uh, perhaps her personally. And Kent Hughes says that it may have been worth up to $30,000, okay? So this is the equivalent of a pretty decent car contained in this little jar of ointment. Now, as she approaches Jesus, the people there would have been expecting one or two things. Maybe they expected, okay, she would take maybe a drop or two and anoint Jesus' head as a sign of respect or honor. Or perhaps they assumed, more likely, that she meant to bring it to Jesus so that he could take it and give it to the poor or keep it for himself as sort of helping fund the ministry of Jesus. But she does neither of those things. She walks up to Jesus and she breaks the jar open. And immediately all the conversation in the room stops. People are wondering, what is she? And then she takes the ointment and pours it over Jesus. All of it. Every drop. And you can see the immediate reaction is shock. It is indignance. It is, it is concern. It is questioning. And the way that everybody reacts to Jesus, especially to Jesus in this moment, tells us a lot about them. What do they really think Jesus is worth? Now, we're going to begin our portrait study with the portrait of the religious leaders at the beginning of the text. What do they think Jesus is worth? Well, their answer is nothing. To them, Jesus is just an obstacle to what they really want, what's of worth to them. 
You see a clear pattern with these religious leaders in the Gospel of Mark. They, they hated Jesus, even from the beginning of the Gospel. They don't like that he eats with sinners in chapter 2. They accuse him literally of being Satan in chapter 3. They are angry he doesn't follow their traditions in chapter 7. And so on and on and on it goes. And you think that these people should have seen the worth of Jesus. These are the people in the Bible. These are the people reading Isaiah 53 and other passages that would have pointed them to Jesus, and they're missing it. Why? Because Jesus rightly diagnoses them in Mark chapter 12. He says what they want is not really to worship the Lord. What they want is something different. They want the places of honor. They want the attention of the people. They want to get rich materially. And to them, Jesus is just an obstacle on the way to what they truly consider is of worth. You know, when I was a kid, uh, so I grew up in El Paso, and, and there is nothing around El Paso in like hours and hours. But my granddad, who was from Mississippi, he was a transplant into the Southwest, he loved to go on these long drives in rural southern New Mexico, like up to Hatch or other places, and his, his big F-150. And, and my mom would say, okay, you need to spend time with your granddad, so you're going to go with him on these long drives. And so I remember as a kid being like having my X-Wing fighter or whatever, and thinking, oh, I gotta go on this drive with granddad. How long is this gonna take? So you get in the truck, and what you really wanna do is back there. In some sense, that's the way these people treated Jesus. They thought, okay, this guy is just an obstacle. We need to get him out of the way so we can get to what we really value. That's what the religious leaders think of Jesus. May Maybe we shouldn't be too quick to, to say, well, there's nothing in common with us. Have you ever found that Jesus is an obstacle on the way to something else that you want? Maybe you want a relationship. Maybe you're single, you want a relationship, but you know it's ungodly, you're in a relationship, but, and, and in some ways all the teaching of Jesus about what you should and shouldn't do is kind of an obstacle you're trying to push out of the way. Maybe it's something else. Maybe you want something in life and Jesus feels like he's in the way. Well, that's the religious leaders. Second, what about Judas at the end of the passage, the, the bracket at the end? We read that, that Judas in John 12 was the treasurer for the disciples. And what he would do is essentially take money off the top. So people would give money to Jesus to help him travel or whatever, and he is skimming money off the top. For, for Judas, Jesus is a vehicle to get what he wants, which is money. Now, as Judas sees what's going to happen, he is thinking, okay, he's calculating, okay, how much is that worth? That is pure nard, whatever. And, and they're bringing it to Jesus, and he's thinking already, oh, man, that's worth $25,000, $25,000, $35,000. How much? I could probably take about 10% off the top, and nobody would be the wiser. And he's calculating how much money is going to be going into his pocket. Then perhaps it's no accident that the very next pericope, right, the next little story is him deciding to pray, betray Jesus for what? For money, actually for a pitiful sum of money in the end. Judas sees Jesus as a vehicle, and when Jesus stops being a vehicle to get him what he really wants, he's done with Jesus. In a similar way, in those long drives with my granddad, um, my granddad, knowing the way kids are, he would say, well, Scooter, he called me Scooter, he's from the South, all right, he had a nickname for everybody. He'd say, Scooter, um, he also calls me Mr. McBride, which he had a lot of nonsensical names for me. I loved him. And he would say, listen, Scooter, if, if you'll come on this drive with me, I'll buy you whatever soda you want, whatever candy you want, and get you a cap gun on the way. And for me, you know, age eight, I'm like sold, 
right? I was in like, my, my parents were, maybe you guys read this, my parents were in the like no sugar phase at that point in my childhood where I would like not be able to have juice because it had sugar in it, you know, stuff like that. And so my granddad's saying you could pick whatever soda you want was like the promised land. And a candy and a soda, I'm eating them together. I'm double fisting this thing. I've got a cap gun in one hand. This is the best. But at the moment, did I really want to spend time with my granddad? Probably not. In a sense, he just got me what I wanted, which is sugar and cap guns. And in a similar way, we can do the same thing. We, we could even go to church. We could even read our Bibles. We could even take steps that look very Christian to everyone around us. And yet, there's something behind Jesus that we really want. He's our vehicle to get what we want. I mean, I've, I've known people that, that have thought, if I just come to church and go to a small group and do this and this and this, then Jesus will bring me a spouse. If I just do this and this and this, th then we'll be able to have a child. Or if I do this and this and this, then Jesus will get me that promotion. And what you want in the end is not Jesus, but something he'll get you. That's the second portrait. The third portrait is the disciples. We finally arrive at the center of the text. Now, it says that some said indignantly. Now, that some includes the disciples, according to other gospels. And remember, the disciples, they are the good guys. They're the followers of Jesus. They loved him. They, they valued him. But here's the thing about the disciples. They valued Jesus up to a point. There was a ceiling, as it were, on their value of Jesus. Now, there's two things that they misunderstood here. First, what Jesus was worth, what Jesus was really worth. And you see this and when they say, why was the ointment, what? Wasted. Wasted. That word tells you a lot about what they believed. Now, they valued Jesus. They thought he was worth quite a bit. They left their nets and followed him. They left their small business, as it were. They left their, their lives. They, they, they spent much following Jesus. Did they believe Jesus was worth following? Yes. But did they believe that Jesus was worth a $30,000 act of worship? No. That was the ceiling. What does your life say about how much you value Jesus? Is perhaps there a ceiling on how much you're willing to value him? What would be too much? What would be too high a price for you? Maybe it's an area of repentance that, that you know that to get more of Jesus, to truly have Jesus, to, to, to follow Jesus, means giving up an area of sin in your life, an area of sin that you don't want to face. Maybe it's a private addiction to, to alcohol or to, to porn. Maybe it's it's a pattern of anger that you're not willing to go and receive counseling and help from others for. Maybe it's, it's you know, a broken marriage that the last thing you want is to sit through counseling with someone else. We, we have at our church, we have a, a group of men who are, bat, you know, it's, it's called the Freedom Fight and they're battling porn addiction together. And unfortunately, the way our church is uh, upstairs, there's only one room that we had, you know, that wasn't being used on Sunday mornings for them to meet in. And it has these windows in the room so you could just see whoever's in there. And I remember one guy being like, is there kind of like another room that we could like go into that people can't walk by and be like, look at that guy. He's battling a porn addiction, right? But in, in a way, the leader said, no, that's, it's fine. It's perfect. There should be a cost to walk in the door, right? 
In other words, you're saying Jesus is worth more than me protecting whatever reputation I have. Maybe there's an area of repentance you're not willing to pursue. Maybe there's an area of reconciliation where Jesus says in Matthew 5 to, to leave your sacrifice and if somebody has something against you to go and be reconciled and come back. And Jesus is calling you to that work of reconciliation and you're like, ah, I'm good. <laughs> but there's more of Jesus. You know, no, I, I'm good with less Jesus and not having to reconcile. Or perhaps an area of suffering. Right? We, we live in a world in which suffering exists as a result of sin and death entering the world. And we wonder at times, is it worth it? it we know that God uses all things and, and He'll use suffering at times, weakness at times, to conform us to the image of His Son and, and display strength through our weakness. And, and, and we, we, we understand and know Christ in a deeper way through that. And yet, Often, even for me, I'm like, you know what? I'm good with less suffering and less Jesus. If the price is more suffering, I'm good with less. And I've thought that many times. For the last year, I've, I've battled chronic pain. Uh, I, I had a, a fissure in my back. And so for the last year, um, I've been in some level of pain. And I had an older saint tell me at one point, oh, because I was going to them for encouragement. They battled chronic pain as well. And they said, oh, but you'll know Jesus so much better after this. And in my heart, I wish I could say that it, when they said that, I was like, oh, amen, I love that. Yeah, thank you, that encouraged me. In my heart, I'm like, Argh. could I do less Jesus and less pain? Is, there, is that an option? The disciples didn't understand Jesus' true worth, but they also misunderstood something else. They misunderstood Jesus' mission. They, they pointed out that they could have kept the money and used it well, not for something bad. They could have used it to help the poor. Now, does, did Jesus help the poor? Did he care about the poor? Absolutely. Did he stop and heal? Did he provide for those at the fringes of society? Absolutely. But the disciples misunderstood his fundamental mission. Jesus kept telling him over and over and over that he was going to the cross to die. He kept giving him these signals and clues and, and, and they were not putting the pieces together and they still believed. You could see from, from this week before the cross what they say and do. They still believed Jesus as the Messiah was going to ride into Jerusalem and take over politically and kick out the Romans and usher in a happy land of Israel in one place, in one geographic center at one time. So the disciples are still thinking, we, we could use this. We could fund the revolution. We could help the poor. And they misunderstood that Jesus' mission wasn't only aimed at the financially poor in the city of Jerusalem, but it was aimed at the poor in spirit in not just in one place, but in every place. Not just in one age, but every age to follow. And oftentimes we can do the same thing. We can think of Jesus as a here and now Savior. We could think, could Jesus' mission is to fix my finances, is to fix my marriage, to fix this part of my life. When in reality, Jesus' mission is not, it's not that small. <laughs> it's really not just the here and now, but eternity. That's what the disciples misunderstood. And last, let's look at the last portrait, the center portrait, as it were. You can imagine these portraits hanging on the walls and in the center is this act of what Mary does. What Mary says about Jesus. What makes Mary take this $30,000 family heirloom and use it in a moment of worship? 
Well, she understands two things correctly, I think. First, she understands Jesus' worth. She understands that Jesus is worth more than her prosperity. This may have been the most valuable thing that she owned. Without her, her total net worth would plummet. Right? If, I don't know if you have one of these things where, you know, you're looking at your finances and you may have, you know, your savings account and, and you know, your retirement and this and that and it's all. And then it gives you a net worth. And you think maybe you're excited by that. Maybe you're discouraged by that. Well, Mary's net worth would plummet without this item in it. But she believed that Jesus was worth more than her prosperity. She also believed that Jesus was worth more than her security. It's very likely that heirlooms like this were used as something of a a financial fallback for families. If things ever were really desperate, maybe they have to flee Jerusalem because of some war, they could take this with them and wherever they go, use it to establish a new life. This was their security. It was the break in case of emergency thing in their house and yet Mary pours it out because Jesus is worth more than her financial security and you also see that Jesus is worth more than her dignity or reputation this would have been a bizarre act a shocking act not just because this woman walks right up to Jesus in the middle of conversation not just because she pours this out which is financially dubious decision not just because that she we also read other gospels she washes his feet with her hair right this is this is an act of extravagant worship that would have made people perhaps snicker after this as they thought of what she had done and yet for her it's worth it yet for her jesus is worth more than all of that you know, we, we have a grief share group at our church, which is a, a group that um, helps those who've lost loved ones process their grief in a, in a gospel way. And uh, the, the, the girl that leads the class, she lost her father about four years ago. He's a great guy, one of our worship leaders in our church, um, godly man. And she, she would describe that she, she often opens the grief share group with the, first, uh, the first night with a testimony of how God met her in that grief and she she said that she was devastated after her father died and she sat actually in her doctor's office describing some physical and other symptoms and her 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 doctor basically said well it's understandable that that you'd be hurting so much and all these things would be happening because your dad was your rock and she describes that that as he said that she knew that what the doctor said was true but she also felt a level of of Jesus speaking to her in that moment as she realized that is true that my dad was my rock but he was never supposed to be the rock and she described that that from that point on she began a journey of understanding that that her dad was not her capital R rock Jesus needed to be her capital R rock her place of safety, her place of security, her her place that she built her life from the rock on which she stood. And if you talk to her today, she would say, you know, she'd never want to lose her dad again. But in many ways, she sees the kindness of God in that through that, Jesus has become her rock. She's a different person now. That 
I think is similar to what's going on with Mary. Jesus is worth more than all of that. And in this moment, that's what Mary is communicating to Jesus, saying you're worth more than all of that. You're my rock, you're my refuge, you're my security, you're my reputation, my identity. Danny Aiken says this, commenting on the passage, about how the church often is okay with measured devotion, but not extreme devotion. He says, the world, and sadly many in the church, will never have a problem with moderate, measured devotion to Christ. They will have no, little to no problem with too many possessions and a pursuit of a comfortable, convenient Christianity. But walk away from a real career, and you'll be marked as foolish, living a wasted Life. Walk away from mom and dad to serve the Lord in an inner city in America among the poor and hurting. You'll be deemed silly and impractical. Walk away from family and friends to head out to the mission field among an unreached people group, taking your small children with you, and you'll be chided as reckless, radical, even imbalanced, and in need of counseling. I think so often for us, brothers and sisters, that, that when we think of Jesus' worth, there too often is an upper limit, a ceiling on that. And what Mary is doing is throwing aside the upper limit, throwing out the ceiling and saying he's worth everything. He's worth everything. That's how much Jesus is worth toward, to her. Second thing she understands that the disciples don't fully get is I believe she understands Jesus mission. In fact, Jesus says that she is anointing him for burial. She knows that, that, that Jesus is heading toward his death because apparently the disciples weren't listening, but she was, right? He said this plainly, Mark says. She gets it. She understands that he's going to die and rise Again, she grasps, I think, that Jesus' mission is bigger than just a temporary earthly kingdom. It is a kingdom of heaven to which there will be no end that will last for eternity. And that will be brought about by his death and resurrection. In John 11, she, Jesus speaks something to her family, something that Mary probably would have grasped well when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The other gospels say that Lazarus too was at this party. And perhaps as Mary sees the living illustration of Jesus' power over death and knows he is heading to the cross and, and, and perhaps in the street passes the Passover lamb on its way to be sacrificed. She's beginning to put these things together and understand that Jesus will die as the Passover lamb for the sins of his people and will rise again, bringing his people to new life. Does she understand all of that? I don't know. But she understands he's on his way to his death and she understands that his mission is bigger than a temporal earthly kingdom she understands much and so in this moment this act of worship is not just an act of worship it's an act of worship pointed toward his death do you believe this jesus asks that I'm the resurrection and the life. And in this moment, Mary says, yes, I believe it. So what do we do 
with this. Well, Mary sees Jesus' worth and, and Jesus' mission, and it moves her to do something. It moves her to give up everything for Jesus. She sees something. She sees something that nobody else in the room or outside in Jerusalem sees. She sees that Jesus is the prize. Why would she make this trade? Why would she trade her financial security and her you know, financial prosperity and her dignity and her reputation and identity? Why would she trade all of this in a moment? Because she grasps something that the Apostle Paul articulates in Philippians 3. Where Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Meaning that there is a trade being made. It's not as though Mary is just giving up her prosperity, her security, her, her identity. She is trading it for a better security, a better prosperity, a better identity. This is the trade she's making. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because, listen, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Look, as we end, brother, sister, this is the question I want to ask you. How much is Jesus worth to you? Is he just an obstacle in the way of what you really want? Is he a vehicle? You're using Jesus to get at what you really want. Or maybe you believe Jesus is valuable, but like the disciples, there is a ceiling for how much value he has. I believe Mary's example is what the scripture points us toward, to make this trade, to trade everything for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Let me end with this. When, when uh, years later, my grandfather that I took those pickup rides with passed away, there, were, there was a period of time where he was kind of just bedridden, which is hard. He was always a contractor, a strong man, a tough man. And as I began to reflect on my relationship with him, I began to see those long rides in the desert differently than I did as a kid. Some of those rides I didn't want to go. I just wanted to stay home, play with my giant plastic X-wing fighter. Some of those rides I just saw my granddad as a vehicle to, to get a cap gun or a giant candy bar. But I began to see as he lay in the bed, man, the prize wasn't the candy. The prize was sitting next to my granddad. As we rode those long back roads, and as he, he used to, as we drove the roads, he used to sing Elvis songs. He used to sing Garth Brooks songs. I hated Garth Brooks, and I hated Elvis growing up, and, and yet, as he passed away, there were times where he'd be in and out of consciousness and I had time with my granddad and I began to sing the songs back to him. Because in that moment I saw the, the prize was relationship with him. And in a similar way, I think this passage calls us to see that the prize is Christ. He's worth it. And let me just encourage you. There's probably two applications here. One is that it, it challenges you. And maybe the Lord Jesus is pointing to something in your closed fist today 
that you know you're holding on to. And if you let it go, you'll have more of Jesus. But you're looking, is this, is this a trade worth making? Is it worth bringing the sin out into the open and confessing it? Is it worth sacrificing my finances for something worthwhile? It, whatever it is, let me encourage you to see with Mary's eyes, not Judas' eyes, disciples' eyes. See with Mary's eyes. It's, it's a trade for, it's not as though you, you trade this for something worse. You trade this for something better, far better. Or maybe today, like me, dealing with chronic pain the last year, you've been in a season of suffering or hardship. And like the senior saint told me, you'll know Christ better after this when I describe my trial. The Lord Jesus is calling you to see he's doing something in your heart. And the cost might be a hard road, but you'll know him so much better after this. And be encouraged that it is worth it. It is a worthwhile trade to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we just pray that, that as you do your work in our hearts, Lord, you would, you would help us see that this is, this is not a, a, a trade where you're pull, trying to pull one over on us. This is a trade that is so worth it. And I pray that as we leave today, we would see you as so much more worthwhile, so much more valuable, especially in light of your mission, especially in light of what you've done for us. We would say, man, we would, with Paul, count it all loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.